We will now begin the ministerial speech and dialogue, which will be moderated by Mr. Bilhari Kausikan, Chairman of the Middle East Institute at NUS. For now, please join me to welcome Minister K. Shamugam, Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Law to the podium. Minister, please. Thank you, uh, my colleagues from Home Affairs, friends. Good to see so many people after lunch at this time on a topic on religion, extremism, and identity politics. But I've been told that this morning's uh, sessions, um, earlier sessions were extremely informative, were very good. Uh, you know, you look at this topic, we in Home Affairs were extremely, um, it's been one of the things that Home Affairs has been doing for ever since Singapore became an independent country and even before that. Because for Singapore, the, uh, one of the key drivers which can affect internal security has been the effect religious division can have on society. The divisions within society along ethnic lines along religious lines, we understood can destroy societies. Something which was not uh, accepted in many parts of the world, whenever we said it, but I think you are seeing the examples all around the world now. And while we were criticized for doing many of the things that we did many years ago, you look at Today, I think we can say the path we took, perhaps unique as it was, has led us to a better place in terms of racial, religious harmony compared with societies which said politically correct things or politically acceptable things, but which actually did not protect racial harmony and religious harmony. But you know, you talk about religion, extremism, identity politics. It's not new, right? You go back to antiquity, you go back to Egypt, you go to the, look at the museums, the tombs, the pyramids. Who is next to the Pharaoh? Who gives the Pharaoh divine blessings? Or you go to Mohenjo-Daro, right down to the present. The leader has to get divine blessings or has to be anointed with divine blessings, has to be seen as someone who has a power of a divine within him. Or in terms that a modern day politician will understand if you come back to Rome 2,000 years ago and the way they looked at Christianity and Judaism, that these are cults, they followed their own rules, they did not follow the rules that the rest of the Romans did and therefore may not be amenable to a political persuasion and power and therefore they had to be dealt with because the different approach to religion threatened the Roman uh, control over power. Or subsequently, when Emperor Constantine became a Christian, it's I think one of the classic examples of identity politics. He had to become a Christian in order to get the lo loyalty of his troops to consolidate political power. So religion politics, I mean, it's not new, the intertwining, the power of religion is tremendous and it cannot be wished away. It has to be dealt with. After the Second World War, for the developed world at least, the 
trend towards political correctness, uh, Western idea of a liberal democracy, meant that you needed to talk about these things in different ways. But to a large extent, the tolerant approach was helped by, I think, a large measure by the fact that the existing elite, the white Christian dominance, was in no way challenged. Now, in today's world, with immigration and the internet, when that dominance is being challenged, you have to ask whether the majority of the people, the average man in the street, really accepts the values that were espoused just a few years ago. The rise of populism across Western Europe and to some extent in the US suggests that at least these things are being challenged, which is not in the interest of any of us because populism has its own uncontrollable uh, separate path. But these things are happening and it's for us to understand them. And if you look at the trends now, additionally, the internet, the anonymity, the democratization of means of expression, so all the things that in the past you felt but you could not express publicly in polite company, xenophobia, hate, gravitating towards what appeals to you, the breaking down of social compacts, today it's possible because you can hide, you can put out your viewpoints, you can be as nasty as you want, you can say the things you want about others, along religious lines, along racial lines. The ease with which negative communication spreads and the fact that exclusivism is very difficult to counter. The result is a coarseness in public discourse, much greater discussion on identity. Many countries, not pointing to any single country, developed and developing, the leaders have now shamelessly adopted this language. Conventions are ignored. They say things unthinkable a generation ago. And they then take, draw power from and also accentuate the deep divisions within societies, making it difficult to get consensus. And leaders hope to win a plurality rather than a majority and govern for the entire society. And the internet companies on the other side are profiting from all of this because the more people go onto the internet, the more money they make. But they use the mantra of free internet, free speech. Meanwhile, societies are getting damaged and broken. My understanding of this discussion, earlier discussion, is that the general view is the rise of extremism is difficult to deal with. The lack of political will across societies to deal decisively with these issues. In fact, politicians are using religion to accentuate the divisions. Uh, governments are weak. They will not tackle these issues. And political systems under the sort of rubric of human rights can't intervene, uh, will not deal with extremism. And I, I understand there was a fair bit of discussion on Islam, but on that, I've made the point elsewhere, while Islam has been topical for the last few years, ISIS and maybe just before ISIS, fact is extremism is something that people of all religions use. And, that's, and I want to illustrate that simply beyond just saying it. So look at this article I've put up 
I've asked for some slides. Rise of militant Buddhism, you see, refer to what's happening in Myanmar on the, under the Theravada strain. These are monks. They talk about Islamic invasion. They use social media. And uh, they talk about the great Buddhist empires in Asia, including Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, how they've succumbed to Islam. Move on. You have people like Viratu and Satyadav, you know, openly inciting hatred of Muslims. The day that ICC comes here is the day I hold a gun. That's the International Criminal Court, which wants to pursue Myanmar's military for persecution of Rohingya. Now, I'm not taking sides on this. I'm just making the point that you know these sorts of extremist viewpoints are not restricted to any particular religion. You have uh, Satyadav saying Muslims have bought the United Nations. There are 400,000 monks in Myanmar. If you need them, I'll tell them to begin. It's easy. Like talking to the Myanmarese military. Move on. Mabata and the things he has been saying. Move on. And over in Sri Lanka, Nyanasara Thero, that halal certification was an evil conspiracy spreading across the island in various guises. It's our duty, just as it is the duty of monks in Myanmar to fight and protect our peaceful island from Islam. Move on. And the various other examples. So it's, we have to get away from this identification of one religion. I think the key point to understand is it's across all religions. All religions are capable of being exploited um, and have been exploited. No doubt, with the money that comes out from Middle East and the problems in the Middle East, Islam has had a higher profile. More people have died. There have been more attacks. But let's understand that this is basic human nature to try and divide people along religious lines or racial lines and exploit it for political power and other reasons. And whoever is in the majority, whichever religion is in the majority, Politicians will try and use it. It's not restricted to any one religion. Our own approach, I think many of you are aware, extremely clear. I think no one doubts and no one should doubt our political will to be very, very direct and clear and firm on this issue. We look at it in this way. First, you have to have the legal basis because just nice talk alone won't do. You have to have the legal framework that tells people what they cannot do. And the political will to charge people and deal with it when they cross the line. Without that legal framework, it's difficult to get society uh, coming together. That legal framework has to be there. Second, the, that alone is not enough. If you just add a legal framework and nothing else, it's not going to work. Society will move in its own direction. And this is where we differ completely from a typical Western liberal democracy, because as the economist describes it, and I can never pronounce this word, I just got confirmation again as to how you pronounce it, we are described as a dirigist government. In other words, nanny state, we intervene in everything. 
we intervene in how people of religion come together how people live where they live where they go to school workplaces we actively try and promote people coming together we actively dissuade people from exclusivist practices if the government doesn't take the lead you will not have singapore recognized as one of the places with the freest possibilities of practicing your religion as well as having among the best racial harmony religious harmony anywhere in the world i mean some publications say we are number one but you know leave that aside the point is you can go to a street there can be a mosque there can be a temple there can be a church and people will freely go into these and not worry about being attacked the jews find singapore in this region as one of the places where they feel safest there's a reason for it the government is both activist and effective and will take steps and makes no apologies for it and to remind some of you now i think 2 years ago 3 years ago we charged an islamic cleric what did he say on a friday prayers they read out the quran which is fine they have the things that um, comes from moist they say that the, that week's sermons and then he added an incantation of his own that came from turkish times god grant us victory over jews and christians it's the words could be translated as god grant us help over jews and christians so it could be translated as victory over christians and jews to me it didn't matter both are the same uh, we looked at it we said let we will charge him why in many countries things like this could be said without anything any other consequences but we said we will draw the line because let's take my police force i have police officers who are christian muslim hindu on friday you go into a mosque and uh, your cleric tells you god grant us victory over christians and on sunday you go into a church and your pastor tells you god grant us victory over muslims what's going to happen after a while everyone is carries a gun they all sitting in the same car how do we handle this no this crosses the line we will draw the line and we took the trouble to explain our thinking to the muslim community they understood it we took the trouble i took the trouble to talk to the christian leaders they understood there are parts of the old testament which if you took a literal reading also suggest violence but no cleric in singapore will do such a literal reading they will contextualize it and we want them to continue to contextualize it and there is nothing in the quran that also calls for violence these additional incantations are outside of the quran we made that clear the cleric was charged and he was asked to leave singapore but a line was drawn everybody understood subsequently couple of christian pastors who came here and or wanted to come and we looked at their background and they had said things about islam islam during the moorish times in spain and so on and we said no and the christians understood as well if they had said those things in singapore they would have been charged so our line is drawn much higher compared with other countries and we make no apologies for it and that is why today whether you are a muslim christian hindu atheist jew 
you go out there, you pronounce who you are, you go to any temple or anything, you want to practice your religion, no one disturbs you. Or seek, I should add. The, along the same lines of, on the one side having very clear laws, and on the other side actively working with the religious leaders and communities and trying to put them together. Our people, 83, 84% live in public housing. We make sure people are mixed. Our schools are mixed. I talked about it. National service brings everybody together. These are all learned, lived experience of being a Singaporean. And a mantra that is brought into us, racial, religious harmony, equality, we, will, we don't say we are colorblind. It's not possible to be. But we say these are the opportunities, and we put everybody together, and we work together. The latest is a few weeks ago. It's a significant achievement which has not uh, gotten the kind of recognition that I think it should. In the context of discussions around the world as to whether people should shake hands with people of another religion, whether you can sit and eat together, whether you know what sort of practices are exclusivist or non-exclusivist, I was very happy that the government agencies mine as well as MCCY, working with the religious organizations, were able to come together and put together a charter of conduct on how we will organize ourselves, how we will behave, that we should eat together, we should sit together, we should interact together, and there is nothing in any of our religions that prohibits this. The Christians, the Muslims, everybody signed up. One or two organizations didn't sign up to it, I was a little bit disappointed that they didn't do so. They know who they are. They felt that, oh, well, it's not necessary because it's, you know, oh, what's the point of signing up to it? But I think the symbolism, the fact that people come together and sign up to it shows that those who signed up all look at it as important and we are swimming, pulling together in the same direction. It's few years ago, it was fashionable in Singapore to talk about, we are in a post-race, post-religious uh, phase. You know, we are all Singaporean. We don't need to be so concerned about uh, race and language and religion, and we should allow free discussions, uh, which would include uh, saying negative things about other religions. We should allow that. The government has always said, no, these run very deep. If you look at a 2018 survey done by University of Chicago together with IPS, majority of Singaporeans last year felt that religion remained relevant, will continue to have a role in the future, and even many who don't subscribe or part of a religion believe that. 42% of free thinkers agreed that religion is as relevant today as it was in the past. You know, we had race riots just like other countries. Uh, that was early you know, history, early 60s. The reason why we took the steps we did and why we are here and that some of the things I've talked about were these race riots. In many other countries, race riots happen and people move on. We had race riots and we decided we will do something about it and it won't happen again. Or we will do everything we can to prevent it from happening again. And we will not adopt a passive approach to securing religious harmony. 
1990, after, I cannot remember, it might be a year, two years of continuous discussions, we took the existing laws and we added some and we created or we legislated the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. 1990 came into force in 1992. There is a white paper that set out our viewpoints built on the principles of separating religion from politics, if that is possible. Uh, it is possible in the sense that you cannot take the religion out of a person who is in politics, but you can prevent them from using that religious card in politics. That's what we've done with the GRC system, with the laws that we have. And the idea was also to promote tolerance amongst faith groups. And it has worked for us. It gives the government powers. Every time somebody, a religious cleric or someone, says something over the 20 years, and it is something wrong. For example, there was a Christian pastor, Ronnie Tan, who said, oh, you know, these Buddhists, they are superstitious. You Have you been to a Buddhist temple? This is what they do. And he put it on YouTube, or went onto the YouTube. My people, internal security department, went and had a coffee with him. He then apologized and has never repeated it. We don't need to charge everybody. Often it's enough for the internal security department to talk to people or even for them to know that they are being uh, watched and they come back into line. Nobody believes that he or she is being squatted upon. I hope. I think in the main nobody believes. Nobody thinks that, you know, we are sort of sitting upon any particular religion. We stand by allowing and encouraging and supporting every religion. But what we don't want is people running down some other religion. So in the intervening, what, 29 years, since 1990, we had the MRHA. The world has become a very different place. We now have Facebook, Twitter, Google, Hate can go viral in seconds. And obviously, we are going to need to relook at the MRHA, need a more robust set of tools, and be able to make sure that we can stop the spreading of hate and discord. And to try and prevent the segregationist practices, identity politics, and religion, we must deal with these problems. We cannot you know, look at the rest of the world and say, they are not doing it, therefore we will not do it. That has never been the Singapore way. And I think the experience, the fact that we have managed to achieve some degree of success in the path we have taken should give us confidence to deal with the problems in unique ways if necessary. So the central principle if anyone says anything about another religion or, which is derogatory or uses his religion as a basis to attack somebody else, then we must be able to deal with it and we must be able to deal with it in the modern information arena effectively. And we need to look at the MRHA in that context and we will do so. And I don't think people doubt that we have the political will both to do that and to enforce it. 
you know, it could have been expedient. It would have been expedient in Singapore to engage in the politics of identity. 74% Chinese, it's obvious which identity will succeed politically. But we made a conscious determination to be multiracial, multireligious, and that no one will be squatted upon on account of racial or religious beliefs. And that commitment is one of the key factors why Singapore has succeeded. And that commitment to our people will not waver, will not change, has not wavered or changed in the intervening years, and we should not allow it to waver or change, and we must update our laws to make sure that we keep to that commitment. Thank you very much. Um, before I exercise the moderator's privilege and ask Minister Shamugam the first question, uh, a few quick ground rules. As usual, please identify yourself when you ask a question, go to the microphone, and make sure it is a question and not a speech in disguise, because we want to have as many people a chance to ask questions as possible. Uh, Minister, thank you for your speech. It's actually a very timely speech because at the last panel before you came, a question was asked about the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act. Uh, it was pointed out, as you did, it's almost 30 years old. Many things have changed in the world. And as you have just broadly hinted, it needs to be changed. But that question was addressed to the wrong person. Now it is the right person. So I'm asking you that question. <laughs> How is it going to be changed and for what reason? I didn't say it's going to be changed. You hinted. <laughs> okay. Look, if you look at the Maintenance of Religious Harmony Act, we took a lot of trouble 30 years ago to make sure that it was understood, accepted by the population as to why we need it. No, we took some time. It wasn't just passed in Parliament. It took some time, and there was a white paper and uh, a lot of discussion around it. And uh, we have uh, been... We had been in extensive discussion with the different religious leaders and groups. Likewise, as we watch the trends elsewhere, we have been in very detailed discussions with uh, different religious leaders groups on ideas. And I can say that uh, all the major religious denominations, groups, organizations, we have been consulting over for a long period, and they're all in sync they all agree with broadly the direction we want to go. So yes, uh, I think we will need to update the MRHA, but we'll have to do it with the agreement of uh, the, the stakeholders at different levels. As I said, we have been discussing with uh, religious groups, religious leaders, but stakeholders are also the people we need to have uh, Put it out, and uh, you know, eventually it will be discussed in Parliament. Uh, I, looking at the trends both in the region and uh, the world, that's pretty essential that we keep up with uh, times. Thank you, Minister. Well, the floor is now open to questions. Surely you have questions for the minister. They're stunned uh, into silence by your question. Minister, the, 
Rohan Gunaratna from RSIS. The, the terrorist threat has grown very significantly, uh, even though the United States said that IS threat is over in Iraq and Syria. But we are seeing that IS is entering a new phase of global expansion. So many terrorist attacks in, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Asia, including in Singapore's immediate neighborhood. Singapore has done exceptionally well uh, to manage the Al-Qaeda-centric threat. But now there's a new wave of threat in this region. What measures would you say that Singapore should take and also the region should take to contain uh, the spread of this vicious ideology in this region that is manifesting in, in the physical space that is also causing tremendous friction between communities. Thank you very much. Thank you, Rohan. You know, to answer this question, it's like a little bit like opening a Russian doll. Each time you open it, there is another issue. First of all, you talk about ISIS, but you know, Al-Qaeda is very much alive. In fact, probably stronger than ever. And uh, you can finish off the fighters in Iraq and Syria, but the ideology of ISIS has spread on the internet. It's now available to everyone who wants to self-radicalize. So you have that, and that is spread. Second, Al-Qaeda is regaining its strength, has specific territory in the Arabian Peninsula, or rather in the Africa, and uh, has affiliates around the world too, quietly building up. In addition, you have, if you look specific to this region with the largest concentration of Muslim population anywhere in the world, it's an obvious target both for Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And specifically, you have the foreign returnees, not all of them have killed, have been killed, the rest will come back, number one. Number two, you have the people who were arrested some time ago, and in Singapore when they arrested, our religious leaders, not government religious leaders, government doesn't have religious leaders, Islamic religious leaders go and talk to them, and they tell us so-and-so is rehabilitated or hasn't been, they work closely with internal security department, you are released sometimes after two years, sometimes after three years, but there are people in custody for much longer if they don't show signs of change. So we work at rehabilitation. But in other countries, you're jailed for a period of time and then you're released regardless of whether your convictions remain. So many of the releasees pose potential danger. So returnees, releasees, and often in jails, <coughs> Jails, people get, um, you know, converted. In fact, you go in as a petty thief, you come out as a jihadist because in jail there are charismatic preachers who are preaching to you. So it's a problem. <coughs> and uh, in this region, if you look at the problems in southern Philippines, it's become a haven for foreign fighters from all over the world. There are various places around the region where foreign fighters can go to. Weapons are easy to obtain. So this all describes what I call the kinetic part. So that's bad enough. 
And meanwhile, the security forces are effective. They are doing a good job, but they are under-resourced. This is only one of the many issues that governments around the region face. There is a second part which is as problematic, if not more problematic. Which is that, um, sorry. The politics. People using religion for political ends and um, either closing one eye or say people don't be, wake up one morning and then decide I want to be a terrorist. That is a process. It's a texture and tone of religious discourse and discussion. And uh, with money coming in from the Middle East and uh, setting up of kindergartens and uh, the preaching in the mosques, over time, when populations become more polarized, then within that population, you get some people you know, who are radicalized. So that is also has been going on, is happening. And unless there is political will to stop that, Lee Kuan Yew, long before all of this was fashionable, set no foreign money into religious organizations into Singapore. I mean, in the 1960s, nobody thought of ISIS, right? So he had the foresight, Mr. Lee. But m most governments around this region and around the world allow foreign funds into religious institutions. And those funds are then capable of being used for a variety of purposes. And I don't see that changing any time. So to me, the picture, whether you talk about the region or the world, this trend, I don't see easy solutions. We don't allow foreign funds. We are very strict. But uh, I think our practices and our approach is not easily replicable elsewhere. Thank you, Minister. Next question. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Zainal Abidin Rashid. Um, uh, I'd like to ask Minister the question about the battle of the minds and uh, the environment we are in, the interreligious environment both in Singapore and in the region. By the way, I, I like your green tie. <laughs> I chose a green tie for a specific reason. I, I, I only commented as an environmentalist. <laughs> My so response is not as an environmentalist. <laughs> but the environment which we are in in Singapore and which you elaborated just now says a lot about the leadership's mind, about the challenges of interracial harmony, whether it's about the constitutional change, whether it's about government policies or even at the community level. How do you see uh, the battle of the minds in terms of religiously minded people, whether among the Muslims, among the Christians, preachers, 
among the Buddhist leaders, because that has been a challenge before, right? In terms, everyone wants to convert the other because they believe in the religion. And in that context, how do you see the region around us? Because they have their own problems. How do you see that affecting us? And how do you overcome those challenges? Thank you. Yes, sir, maybe we take both questions and then okay. Please. Well, I suspect there will be two very different types of questions. Good afternoon, Mr. Minister. Thank you very much for your comments. Uh, I used to work in the U.S. government, and the two examples of DRAD programs that were the shining lights on every counterterrorism uh, speech that I've ever heard, one was in Singapore and one was in Saudi. Uh, I'm curious, uh, what, how do you rank your DRAD program, and is it still the best in the world and why? That's a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> now, um, let me deal with uh, Zainul's question while I think of an answer to yours. The, um, on Zainul's question, if you ask me about a region, I think the experts have spoken before I did about what's happening in the region. You know what's happening. Uh, you see, not all the governments, you have a... Buddhist-majority country in Thailand, a Muslim-majority country in Malaysia, Indonesia, a Catholic-Christian-majority country in the Philippines, and then Myanmar. You have every shape, but you can see that uh, from the issues that have arisen in the last few years, uh, there have been problems in all of these countries along religious lines, right? I'm not saying the governments are at fault, I'm just saying that the populations have gone at each other along religious lines. Malaysia and Indonesia, a little bit less so, though you have had incidents in Indonesia, but of course in Myanmar, there has been a little bit more of a problem along those lines. But uh, the rhetoric along religious lines is quite intense in many of these places. There is undoubtedly a greater degree of radicalization. Simply, if you look at the numbers who are being arrested as a proxy, that shows radi radicalization is on the rise. Surveys show that uh, people are more and more conscious of their religious identity, and uh, they also are taking positions which uh, we would consider to be uh, problematic. So, it's not a very pretty picture. We are standing alone and somewhat unique in this environment. Now, the leaders, whether you take Malaysia, Indonesia, other countries, I think they want to do the right things. So it's not so much an issue of leadership. It's more a question of what is possible. To what extent will the system allow it? To what extent do the clerics have power? To what extent does the government have the power to do certain things? And to what extent will the people accept any uh, actions by the government? So it's, it's not, you know, you can't have a simple solution. The government can do it. Can the governments do what they need to do? I mean, often they will say to you, they are not able to do what they need to do. Or the population will not accept it. And, you know, if you are chosen by a majority uh, vote, you have to cleave to what the people want as well. So it, we should be very careful about passing judgments. But it's moving along the lines across the region, regardless of religion, along a, a deeper 
false lines based on religion. That much is clear. And uh, I think that sort of move over a period of time will eventually lead to more problems, intra-society as well as between societies. And we'll just have to deal with it as best as we can. But meanwhile, we need to make sure that what is unique and good about Singapore, we maintain. In Singapore, why don't our monks say the things that uh, the monks in uh, Myanmar and Sri Lanka say? Because first, it doesn't, I think many of them don't think along those lines. And that's not because we are automatically different, but because over many years, our legal framework and our uh, conventional framework within Singapore has conditioned people to move away from that sort of antagonistic uh, approach. So Muslim clerics in Singapore will not think of saying similar things. Neither would clerics of any other religion. And they know if they did, my people will talk to them. And more. So that always helps, right? The, the power is there, so they know that will be exercised. And they know the government is not beholden to any particular religion and will act. So let's see. Um, as for this second question, in terms of de-radicalization program, what I like about the Singapore program is that uh, it's something that we facilitated, we meaning the government facilitated, the Internal Security Department, others facilitated, but we were very clear that it had to come from the community and it had to be independent. If I went and talked to a detainee about religion, I won't have any credibility, even if I were a Muslim. But if a cleric from outside, independently of his own free will, and there are women as well as men, ustasas as well as ustas, who do this, they came together, they said they need to do something for the community, and they need to talk to these people, the detainees, about what religion is really about. They came up with the syllabus, we helped, we facilitated, we also facilitated them going overseas to learn more about religion, which is good, cross-fertilization. But the program is this, they own it, they talk to the detainees, they work with them. The community knows it, therefore the community says, we are dealing with the problem. In that way, we, I think it is uh, something that people can understand and accept. But all of this has to be seen in context, of course. Our numbers are much smaller. I mean, we are not dealing with the numbers that um, many other countries deal with. It's a very intense program because you're talking about one-to-one. -one. You're putting in a lot of resources in that sense. You need a lot of human resources. You need a lot of support. And um, if another country were to do it to, say, 5,000 people, I think the, the scale is very different. We are dealing with, say, 150 people, 200 people or less. But part of the reason why it's only 150 or 200 is also because our, con our framework within Singapore hasn't led to that much radicalization. So when you keep the problem small, it's also easier to deal with. When you take a laissez-faire, hands-off approach to the whole issue of r relations between uh, religions, then I think you, you get it pushed to whichever side, whoever is most active in pushing. And the people who are most active in pushing are the uh, 
in the last several years, in the last 10, 15 years, have been people who are advocating violence, a charismatic type of uh, approach to religion, not just Islam, and who are pushing the boundaries. We don't allow that. So we keep the problem small, and then uh, we also um, deal with it in this way. Saudi Arabian program, I don't have enough knowledge. What I do know is that it involves uh, a greater level of uh, financial commitment by the state compared with the Singapore program. It involves giving a fair bit of money and land and so on to the detainees. Uh, I haven't looked at the data to see what's the relapse rate. Our relapse rate is very low. And I have tried to look at the US program. I think the US is trying to do what it can too. Um, but uh, the US, of course, it depends very much on the philosophy of the administration concerned. Some administrations will think one philosophy is right, and some others may think uh, another approach is uh, appropriate. So it's slightly different. Yeah. Thank you, Minister. Um, good afternoon, Minister. My name is Timothy. I'm from the Alliance of Pentecostal and Charismatic Churches. Um, my question pertains to um, the maintenance of uh, social and religious harmony in Singapore, and perhaps it's a little bit more of a local and practical question. Um, so what do you see as the limits of hate speech used against religious communities and beliefs? Um, do we perhaps draw the lines at threats of force and violence, or are we able to extend those lines to um, mockery and blatant disrespect, which also has the capacity to wound the religious feelings of uh, religious communities? Um, is there any way perhaps to uh, engender mutual respect amongst communities, both in the physical space, but as well as the online space, which can sometimes be a bit of a cowboy town? Um, and perhaps will the, the revised MRHA speak into this? Uh, thank you. Well, let me, I think it's a very, very important question. Let me ask you, don't sit down yet. Um, what is your own view? Should we just restrict ourselves to violence, or should we go beyond that to cover insults and uh, mockery? You know, today the MRHA allows us to deal with you, if uh, not just for violence. If you make derogatory remarks uh, that, I mean, you know, the cleric was charged, not under MRHA, under the penal code, but when he asked God, invoked God's powers to grant victory over Christians and Jews, and if somebody had said something similar amongst the Christians or Hindus, I, we would have done the same thing. But uh, let me ask you, do you think the law should also preclude people from going into mockery and insult to other religions? Okay, well, thanks for the opportunity to speak into this. Um, I think it depends on what kind of society we're trying to build. And... I, as a political science student, you know, my, my degree was in political science, I understand that we tend to try to chart our own path as a nation. Um, Western liberal democracy with the values of free speech are something that uh, are values that are prized in the West, but they're not necessarily prized here. But at the same time, we don't take a paternalistic approach to social cohesion. So I think, perhaps, that there is a middle ground that can be established where society can be educated about responsible communication as opposed to just allowing a laissez-faire cowboy town. What do you think, uh, who was it, Nyano Tera, would say to you when you preached to him 
responsible speech. Well, uh, I don't think he subscribes to, uh, to uh, our style of doing things, which is a little bit more circumscribed in terms of our communication yeah. style to one another. Well, a few different points. I would say, first of all, if you don't have the legal power, pure persuasion has its limits. Persuasion works when people know that you also have the power to carry out and prevent something negative. Okay? So I'm a believer in making sure the power is there, but I'm also a believer in not exercising that power. You shouldn't have to exercise the power, because if you did, society will not be what it is. You cannot encourage positive conduct through law. You cannot prescribe in law, you shall respect other people. You know, it's meaningless. You can say in law, you will not run down another religion. And that philosophically is also, in my view, acceptable because first, I guarantee you freedom of religion through the Constitution. You practice your faith. You go to church. You believe in God. Do what you think your God wants you to do or what your faith in God requires you to do. But just make sure it doesn't cross into your elbow hitting somebody else's face, you running down someone else's religion, you insulting someone else on the, because of their religion. Because we have many different religions. We are not a unicultural, uh, so, so monocultural society or monoreligious society. I think that is society will accept it. That's the way we have structured our society. Free speech, it's not a question of free speech or no free speech. I often ask audiences, what is it that you want to say that you think you can't say in Singapore? Can you have political commentary? Yes. Can you think, can you criticize government policies and disagree with them violently? Yes. Can you criticize uh, a variety of uh, issues, express your viewpoints, give your viewpoints on how society or people should conduct themselves? Yes. So what is it that is prohibited? Actually a very narrow set of things. One, you want to say that I took money, you better prove it. Because, you know, free allegation against someone of fact, you know, he took money, he is corrupt. You prove it. Otherwise, don't say it. Second, you want to run down another race or religion. All Muslims are this, or all Christians are that, or all Malays are this, or all Chinese are that. Don't say it. There's no reason for you to say that in public. Don't incite violence. So the rules which restrict free speech are actually very narrow. And that is enforced. The rest of it is a large amount of space for you to speak about. So when it comes to religion, we already um, make illegal incitement to violence. In fact, incitement to violence, even on non-religious grounds, is an offense. But on religious grounds is also an offense. Uh, insulting another religion is offense. The question is, how should we look at that in the context of the internet? And how should the MRHA operate in a modern context? And uh, you have touched uh, in the very essence of some of the things that we are looking at. And on things which we actually have uh, gone quite far. 
and we will be in a position to talk about it uh, sooner than you think. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Yep, over there. Good afternoon, Minister. I'm Rustam Gadiali from the Parsi Zorashian Association. And my question is about the role of the children of Singapore for tomorrow. We are very well settled today. And I think the government has done a fantastic job because we are ahead of time in many issues. Today, we don't see any terrorism or problems here. We see peace, harmony, religious harmony, and security. But our children have no knowledge of religion, and what they see on the television is ISIS. A recent case was about this young boy from Pakistan. As you know, in Pakistan, all people have the habit of saying, inshallah. Now, this family is not a Muslim. So this young boy tells the grandmother, why do you keep on saying inshallah? Can't you see what the Muslims are doing? To him, every act that he sees on the television today is by the Muslims or Islam, which is not true. We have seen that today religion is just being used by terrorists. And terrorist today is a terrorist is a terrorist. You can't call him whether he's a Muslim or Hindu or Parsi or Gujarati. They are from all religions. Any little thing that they see that they don't like, they join ISL or they become a terrorist. It was like before where we had the freedom fighters, as we used to call them. When I was young, as I remember, freedom fighters. Today, they, we call them terrorists. But what about our children? Why don't we give them some proper knowledge about religions? Why don't we teach them all religions, some basic about all religions, sir? And that will save us. You people are always ahead of time. I think we should do something about it. You're talking about religious Thank education you. in schools. Sorry? You're talking about religious education in schools? No, no religion. No, I mean... No religion is being taught in school. No, no, do you, you are suggesting that there be yes, religious... Yes, we should, we should. Okay. Um, this is Thank a you. topic that frequently comes up. Why don't we teach religious education in schools? Um, you know, we used to teach religious education in schools more than 30 years ago, uh, maybe 35 years ago or so. There is a problem. And the problem is this. You have parents, Christian or Muslim and so on, in school, if we want to teach, we need to be equal and we teach about all religions. Christian parents get very upset when their children are taught about other religions. Muslim parents get very upset when their children are taught about other religions. They say, we don't want our children to learn about other religions. Uh, likewise, parents of other religions too get concerned. And they all worry that by being exposed to ideas from other religions, it's wrong from their religious perspective, or you know, their children could potentially be converted. So 
MOE found itself in the middle of all these arguments and serious concerns by parents and uh, felt that this is not an area that uh, the government needs to get involved in. We leave it to the parents to teach their children and hopefully they will have a broader understanding of other religions. But it's not, government cannot be seen to be doing some, if people object to education on the basis of their religious beliefs, uh, and this is not maths or science, it's about other religions, then we need to have a care as to how much we do it. So it was dropped, scrapped. Good afternoon, sir. I'm uh, Travis. I'm a third year psychology major at NUS. I have a question. It's been 30 years since the ethnic integration policy has been introduced. Right, it's been a tremendous success, I would say. We have prevented racial enclaves from occurring in the country. And the same question can then be asked, why have not we done something similar with religious groups? Is there, or maybe, you know, like, is it not such a problem because everyone's equally spread? But you could also argue that, you know, if I live with people of different religions, um, I may not interact with them, etc. But why don't we have something similar to the EIP? It would help, I guess. I would think it would help, like just like the EIP has helped improve racial harmony, such a similar policy might help improve religious harmony and prevent misunderstandings from happening. Thank you. So we'll have to ask people to declare their religions and then give them housing board flats <laughs> according to... I can't even begin to think of the problems that will come about. But in a broad sense, you know, it's not very precise, but it's happening anyway because 98% of Malays are Muslims. And uh, Christians, of course, there are Indians who are Christians too, but... Majority of Christians, you know, Chinese, they are amongst the Chinese, 28% or so, 20-odd percent. So if you left it to EIP, ethnic integration policy, as in, you know, you make sure that every precinct has sufficient numbers of Indians, Malay, and Chinese, in a broad, not, not very precise, but in a broad way, you will have the different religions too. So I think we probably achieve most of what you hope without having to go to this further step, which I think people might find too intrusive. Stephen Fong. Um, Stephen Fong. Um, I'm with the IRO. I'm Christian. I'll pick up on this particular point about educating our next generation. Um, I'm of the viewpoint that we are basically facing a greater threat, which is a virtual uh, enemy. And it's been brought up already that any one of us, tech-savvy, can research on any religion, any hate speech, etc., etc., at will. How do we, in Singapore, continue to maintain the harmony that we have achieved through the foresight of our, our leaders by helping to guard what our younger generation receives, either directly or indirectly. I 
I'm of the, um, of the view that some kind of moral education is still needed in schools. I understand the conundrum about parents, objections, etc., etc., but there must be a common ground for us to propagate racial education and harmony at the same time through various media and not leave it to the virtual world to educate our, our next generation. Thank you. Racial harmony as well as harmony within our society is a key theme in a lot of things that we do, as you appreciate, in schools. Uh, teachers take uh, put a fair amount of attention on that. And the key point is, first of all, the physical proximity, where they live with each other. So that's critical, and we make sure of that. Second, when they grow up, through kindergartens, through primary schools, our integrated schools means most of our schools reflect broadly the population mix. So kids go to primary schools, secondary school together. Uh, we do notice that in some schools, the proportions are skewed, and we ought to do something about it. But in the main, I'm talking about the majority of schools, the kids are playing together, sitting down together, in class together, and that is a great, great help. You don't, like uh, in some other countries, have different schools for different races. That builds walls. And when the kids grow up, the, for the boys, they go into national service, which is another great integrator. They, you know, they train together, they live together, they sleep together. And for the girls, they go into university. Again, our universities, while we don't have an ethnic policy in the universities, and therefore the proportions are slightly different, nevertheless, you have all the races there. We, amongst the lecturers as well as amongst the students. So as average Singaporeans live, and wherever you go out in Singapore, whether you eat out or you're going to a place of entertainment, you are never too far away from another race. You know, you run into people all the time of different races, religious practices, the uh, different symbols of religion, different temples. So that is part and parcel of Singaporeans uh, growing up and uh, psyche. What you're suggesting, and I understand there is value in it, is some sort of education, a moral education, that will try and uh, bring this in a in a more, in some stronger way into them. And certainly something that, you know, I will pass on to Ministry of Education, who will probably tell me their curriculum is already overcrowded. And they are trying to remove things from their curriculum. But anyway, I'll pass it on. Gillian. Minister, good afternoon. Um, I have two quick questions. First, uh, one of the speakers, Ms. Farah Pandit, talked about how there's a great hunger among young people, certainly Muslim millennials, but we have them in Singapore as well, great hunger to kind of chase after answers about what they should believe. What are the right answers to that question? And that Sheikh Google is always there to offer some kind of answer. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, uh, whether it's not, not legislation, but more generally maybe some kind of antidote to shake Google. 
and his, its um, potential to propagate ideas that are not that are foreign to us. The, my second question is this. Um, in a general election, um, as we know the context today, there's um, a lot of um, issues that are related to the culture wars. I won't name any particular one, but I think we know which one has been hot uh, in our political landscape today. What would you say in the contestation, in the electoral contestation, where groups or parties take a stance, and it's a stance that seems sim uh, um, ostensibly secular, but that the opposing view or groups or political parties uh, necessarily or feel that it's necessary to draw in the religious inspiration to their position? Would that be ruled out of court and therefore that politicians or their followers have to come up with a different way to contest those positions on those issues that are very deep set and have to do with those cultural wars. I, I think you know which topic I'm referring to, where one group is asking for a change in the status quo and uh, presenting a secular point of view, whereas the other group that's saying no um, will be associated with uh, uh, some kind of religious background. Thank you, sir. Thank you. On your first question, or Sheikh Google, it's not, well, it's not just Sheikh Google as it were, because Google is a platform. There are uh, people around this region, radio stations, TV stations, with uh, regular religious programming who target uh, the Singapore population and who purport to offer answers to all the doubts that people may have, and uh, supposedly religious scholars stating this is the position. And uh, they have no interest in Singapore. The radio stations are often there to make money, or the TV stations are there to make money and collect donations even from Singapore. So the answer to that is cannot be just legislation. You know, Thou shalt not watch this or listen to that. How do you do that? You can't do that. Uh, the answer to that has got to be that your own people within Singapore have got to be credible and have got to have the reach and must offer a service where they clarify people's doubts. So whether it's a church or whether it's a mosque or temple, young people ought to feel that there is a credible place where they can go to and ask questions and they won't be told, well, this is the answer and don't ask reasons why. And beyond the physical going to the place of worship, you also need an online presence. So MUIS, for example, has started that online presence. And if you look at uh, the various uh, initiatives MUIS has taken, the Ustazas, ladies, Ustas, with online presence, answering questions, uh, putting out their viewpoints, uh, it's quite impressive. You know, they, they reach a large audience and they have credibility because they are in Singapore, they can be questioned anytime and you know, they can stand by, they know this society. So the answer to people's doubts is not to shut off avenues unless they incite violence, but 
to offer credible alternatives and then encourage people towards those credible alternatives. And you can't win debates in today's world by shutting off some viewpoint. You've got to actually expose it and say why it is uh, wrong. And you've got to persuade people to see it from your perspective. But if there is an attempt to radicalize, if there is an attempt to push forward a line that's inimical to religious, ethnic relationships, then we can do something. And people will understand why we do something. On your second point, I mean, you skirted around the topic, but essentially you're asking me whether, you know, we'll have to amend the penal code and LGBT issues and how, uh, whether, you know, it will be, uh, whether it will become a hot topic in the elections. A couple of answers. First of all, if you look at it today, uh, the main opposition party, in fact, the only party in parliament other than the PAP, has said that uh, they don't take a view on repeal and they leave it to individual conscience or something along those lines. Uh, so they don't see, uh, I think, uh, politically it is in their interest to take a very strong position on uh, repeal. In fact, uh, probably if you look at the statements by government ministers, they've gone a little bit further. I mean, individual viewpoints have been expressed. I have expressed my personal viewpoint. Uh, others have expressed their personal viewpoints. But we have also said we have got to let this move in tandem with the mainstream viewpoint, you know, what the mainstream of society uh, wants. Now, if people organize themselves, you know, technically, gay, gay sex amongst males is an offense, but who is issuing the license for the party in uh, Honglim Green? It's my ministry, you know, we are giving the license to them to hold this massive carnival with thousands of people. So it's not as if we are going around issuing charge sheets to people or enforcing the law. In fact, we are doing the reverse. We are saying, you know, you want to come together and you want to uh, put out your viewpoint, you know, you go and gather and you do it. Right? Pink parade. The, uh, you cannot prevent people from organizing for and asking for LGBT rights, nor can you prevent people from organizing, whether along religious lines or non-religious lines, to say that they are against a greater legitimization of LGBT rights. These are political issues. People are entitled to express their views. A right of association is free, and we shouldn't be curtailing those rights. People are entitled to argue about what sort of society they want to see. People are entitled to say, I want a society where LGBT rights are enshrined. People are also entitled to argue and say, I don't want, I want status quo. These are political rights, and it should not be for the government to say you cannot be talking about this. It should not be for the government to say you cannot bring religion in to argue about this. I mean, you are informed by your religious viewpoint, but it will be wrong for a politician to say my religion says this and therefore I say that. It's, an, it's a careful line. You know, 
you, you, for a politician, for a minister, I think you ought to approach it as you're a minister for the entire country, and you've got to look at the different viewpoints, and then you've got to take a view on what's in the best interest of the entire country, regardless of your personal religious beliefs. In the elections, can you prevent this from being argued? I don't think you can. But what you should do, and what we will do, and what we will make even more clear in future amendments, is that you cannot use religion to attack uh, people who espouse LGBT causes, incite violence, nor should you, the reverse is also true, nor should people who want to promote uh, uh, change in the current status quo, or who support LGBT rights, should incite violence against people of religion. I think that's fair, fair is fair. And the police will step in, and charge both. Oh, that's the intention anyway. Yeah. So keep it free of violence. Organize yourself and argue as much as you want. <coughs> First the lady and then the person behind. First of the... yeah, okay. um, I'm Ko Tai An from the Center for Liberal Arts and Social Sciences, NTU. Um, Minister, you may know, and members and Singaporeans may know that in schools we've tried moral education, we've had religious education, and when Confucianism was introduced along with uh, religious education, there was one module that was suggested but was never implemented. And uh, sorry, one uh, course, and that, um, let me go back a bit. Um, uh, Islam was taught, um, Christianity was, Confucianism. Right? And there was one neutral module, history of religions. Right? And I understood from people in the know that this was uh, a syllabus was actually uh, prepared for it. Um, so I was a bit surprised just now, because I've not heard about this before, that attempts to teach children about other religions have met with resistance from parents. So I thought uh, history, that syllabus that was proposed some years ago, of the various religions, would be quite a neutral uh, way of introducing students to the to other religions, you know, their histories, their their main beliefs and figures, and so on. How come? Do you know why this was never implemented and why it cannot be implemented? Because one of the things that that the education uh, 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 ministry have always obsessed about is values. And it seems to me, you know, much of the debate about religion is also about values, right? Thank you. But whose values, Prof Ko? That's a problem with religion, right? My values based on my religion are very different from your values based on your religion. And unfortunately today, actually you look at uh, Islam, you look at Christianity, you look at Hinduism. The values, the essential values, Buddhism, Sikhism, Judaism, the essential values, the practices, the uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, what you do, how you pray uh, might be different, but the essential values, there is a lot of commonality. But there are people who will get very upset if my child is taught about another religion even though the values that are being taught are similar to my religion. It's uh, something about religion that makes people upset. 
And that's, you know, I'm neither justifying nor criticizing it. I'm just describing it as it is, which is why in our MRHA and in the further amendments that we are looking at, we want to be very strict about uh, using religion as uh, ground for inciting violence, for uh, insulting others, or using uh, or inciting violence or insulting people of other religions. So th these are things, because this, this is like a tinderbox, very quick to uh, catch fire. But uh, whether MOE can now look at a broader-based syllabus, I mean, I'll certainly pass on the viewpoint. I suspect there will be a fair bit of resistance, because you and I sitting here after one and a half hours of discussion, we know exactly what we are talking about. But MOE sends a note to 500,000 parents, or you know, even you take a particular cohort, and they start with a cohort, uh, 40,000 parents, that this year we are going to teach about the morality of religions or something. You can imagine it's capable of being seriously misunderstood. So they, they will be very careful, I think. Uh, every religion has its own version of its history. It's not objective. Anyway. <laughs> Uh, Minister, hi, I'm Kumar Ramakrishna from uh, RSIS uh, NTU. Uh, I suppose uh, we want to try to uh, get the, uh, the Singapore's approach to maintaining uh, religious harmony. Essentially, what it, the government would like uh, all religious groups to do basically is to uh, contextualize their religious beliefs according to the realities of living in a multi religious, multi-racial society. But of course, we, we know that there are some groups, uh, very understandably, will say that, well, my religion is perfectly fine. There is no need to contextualize my religion. Uh, so how would you approach groups and individuals who have this point of view? I think, by and large, our approach is, uh, it's ironic that I should say it in the context of everything else I've said. We try not to get into the substance of the religious practice, and we take a light touch. Right? The framework we draw is we don't want you saying nasty things about others. I mean, that's clear enough. We don't want you to incite violence. We don't want you to run down others. Next step, we just would like you to look at some practices insofar as they prevent you from, or your people from, uh, living harmoniously and in a friendly way with people of other religion within Singapore. The density is 760 square kilometers, 5 million people, of whom 3.6 million are either citizens or permanent residents. You're living next to each other. If you won't shake hands and you won't sit down and eat with each other and you won't greet each other, what sort of society are we going to create? So we just look at some of those things. I mean, you know, I assume you've seen the charter. So we look at those things. Within, subject to that, how you contextualize, what you contextualize, what you say about your own religion, the government, it's not the government's business really to get involved in those things. But some practices, uh, if you believe that you cannot shake hands, we try and get your religious leaders to come out and say, what is the truth? And the truth is, there is no such thing. Or at least as far as you know, as people advise us that it's possible for you to live in a multiracial society and interact with each other harmoniously. It's possible, and we should encourage that. 
So that's, I think, the limits of the government's rule. Okay, we have probably time for one more question, provided it is a short one and one that can elicit Freddy a quick is, answer. Freddie uh, is desperately uh, seeking your attention. Yeah. Okay. Good afternoon, Minister. Uh, Freddie Hong from IPS. Um, thank you for letting me ask this question. Uh, in your presentation, you talked about uh, the propensity of the government to intervene, uh, and, and I think it's a very important uh, intervention that enables us to have a religious harmony in Singapore. I wonder if the good situation that we have could also be because we don't have a situation where there's one dominant religion, and then there are many subservient uh, religions. Instead, you know, no religion could actually say that it is the most dominant in Singapore. But what I worry is that there are some religions that are very effective in the evangelical uh, uh, movements in attracting very young congregations. And I fear that if uh, in the future uh, there are some religions that don't attract enough young uh, congregations, will we end up in a situation where we would have uh, a more dominant religion and then less dominant religions, would that be a concern? Well, the answer to your question can be found uh, if you analyze it not along religion but ethnicity. There is quite clear which is a dominant race in Singapore, 74%. Uh, the first, almost a pretty much the first thing that Mr. Lee said after Singapore became independent was that this is not a Chinese state, this is not an Indian state, this is not a Malay state. This is Singapore, a country for all, right? Very powerful words. And where did he say it? I think two or three weeks after, he went in Comunicado for two, three weeks after 9th of August. And then he turned up at Sri Narayana Mission in Sambawang and said this. Um, so Singapore could easily have been in fact, all logic dictates that it should have been a state that carries through the logic of being a Chinese majority state. Mandarin should have been the national language. Mandarin should have been the business language. And uh, it should have been clear that uh, Mandarin would be, Mandarin and the Chinese would be dominant in every sphere. To argue for multiracialism, to argue for four national languages, official languages, to argue for English as the medium of communication, education, and business was actually swimming against logic, swimming against political logic. Not many could have carried it off. Mr. Lee has recounted that soon after independence, the Chinese business people, senior businessmen went to see him and said, okay, now we are out of Malaysia, you know, Mandarin should be this. Chinese should be this, and so on, and he rejected all of that. I mean, you know, when you recount it, you don't get the color of it, but go try win elections, and uh, try and tell the majority that they are not going to exercise the powers of the majority. So he was successful, and we have been successful for 50 years now in sort of not giving in to the natural logic of the weight of numbers. The other thing that he did is, of course, the GRC system, which a lot of people said is a political gimmick, but actually it has removed race from the rhetoric. 
in elections. So people have to focus on economics, people have to focus on social policies, they cannot focus on race. Because in a GRC system, you've got a Malay candidate, I've got a Malay candidate. So how to say he is a Malay, why are you voting for him? Which is what they used to say, which is what they say in other countries, right? So you have that. So even if we had a dominant religion, I think uh, if you had these policies, you probably would have had the same result. But second, it's yes, there may be no overwhelmingly preponderant religion, but you know, 28% of uh, Singaporeans are Christians. And if you look at, uh, in terms of education and uh, socioeconomic status and positions of influence and power, the percentage is much higher than 28%. Nevertheless, Singapore has not gone down the path of uh, emphasizing, say, Christian dominance. And there is a broad acceptance that uh, we should live and let live. So I am an essential, uh, I, in practical terms, it will be foolish of me to say we have achieved nirvana and uh, things won't get back to uh, where they lo logically should be. It's very easy for us to get into a situation where the electoral logic and the political calculus following that electoral logic of Chinese majority, Christian majority, various other things, and leaders who cleave to that kind of rhetoric, it's very easy for us to get to that. At this stage, no. Well, we have run out of time. Please, uh, all of you join me for, in thanking Mr. Shamagam for <laughs> the patience to sit here for so long and the candor which he has answered our questions. Please, a round of applause.